We've been talking about rest for our souls for the last several weeks. And the reason we're doing that is because the world is actually a difficult place. And there are a lot of reasons to be anxious in our souls. We're not talking about rest in the sense of, you know, you're tired, you're physically tired, so you just take a nap or you get to bed early and you wake up the next morning and you feel fine. We're not talking about that kind of rest. We're talking about the rest for your souls. It comes because your insides, your heart, your mind, your spirit is just roiling. It's just, you know, you feel the weight, the burden, the pain, the anxiety, the loss, the grief of this world. And, it, and it's hard sometimes to just feel calm and at peace and in rest. And yet it's this very kind of world that Jesus comes to us and says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the theme verse from Matthew 11 that we're using for this whole series. Jesus is promising that in the real world, in the in nuts and bolts, flesh and blood world that we live in, with all of the pain and trauma in it, he's promising that in the midst of this world, that it's possible to find rest in our souls. Jesus is the giver, the bearer, the creator of rest for us. Now, this morning, we're going to be talking about what it means for God to be our Father. That when we know God is our Father, that opens up a vast new arena of possibilities for us to experience the rest of Jesus. J.I. Packer, James Packer, uh, once asked the question, what is a Christian? And his answer to the question was, a Christian is someone who has God as his or her father. A Christian is someone who has God as his or her father. There are over 200 references in the New Testament to God as father. One of them comes from 1 John chapter 3. See, behold. Take the time to look at it. It's a strong word, that first word that gets lost a little bit in the English translation, but it's a word saying, stop what you're doing and pay attention. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who live in this hope, all who have this hope in him, Purify themselves just as he is pure. 
what John is saying is that God, our Father, has lavished incredible, unbelievable love upon us. It's love available to all of us, but it's not always known. But for those of us who do know it, it changes everything about us. It changes how we see reality. It changes how we see ourselves and other people. It changes how we walk through all the hard stuff of life. Packer continues with uh, his quote, the conviction that God is your father lies at the heart of understanding the whole of the Christian life and all of the diverse elements in our daily experience. It is the way, not, not the only way, but the fundamental way for the Christian to think about himself or herself. Our self-image, if it is to be biblical, will begin just here. God is my Father. The Christian self-image always begins with the knowledge of God and who he is. I am one of his children. I know my real identity. His people are my brothers and sisters. I recognize the family to which I belong and have discovered my deepest roots. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his or her worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. God is our Father. We are his children. That's our fundamental identity. It's our deepest, greatest, most intimate relationship, or at least it's meant to be. Throughout the Old Testament, you see a picture of God as Father being worked out. God creates the first man, the first woman, and he brings them together, and he puts them in a place that he specifically, purposefully prepared for them, a a place that has everything they need, food and shelter and water and beauty and creativity. He prepares a place for them. And not only does he prepare a place for them, but he puts them in a place where they can have access to him all the time. He walks with them. And they know him face to face, intimately, without any kind of barrier, restriction at all. And then what happens in chapter three of Genesis is they turn away from their father's love and they go their own way and everything shatters. They shatter their relationship with God. They shatter their relationship with one another. They shatter their relationship with themselves and with the creation around them. All of it breaks. But even in the midst of the worst kind of rebellion against him, God does not abandon his people. He provides for them. And he finds 
provides means for them to stay in relationship with him. The whole story of the Bible is God again and again and again reaching out in love to preserve, to protect, to liberate his people. And the story of the Bible is again and again and again God's people rebelling against him and turning away from him, rejecting his love, walking in their own way. God establishes covenant with his people. And again and again and again, they break that covenant. And yet God does not break covenant with them. He does not break covenant with us. Throughout the Old Testament, God keeps pursuing and blessing his people. Why does he do that? Because he's a father who loves. Uh, I'm a father. I have a son and three daughters. One of my daughters is a foster daughter. She's been with us for a long time. She's 23 now. When our daughter was 12, her mom died of cancer. And her father abandoned her. And she ended up in the, in the system. And a couple of years later, uh, she came into our family. She did nothing to deserve what happened to her. She was abandoned. There's a lot that we've done to deserve God abandoning us. But he does not abandon. He will not abandon his people. Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses a metaphor to talk about what it is to be related to God, his Father. He uses a a term called yasthenia. It's a term that literally means to be placed as or adopted as sons. Now, one of the problems we have with the Bible is that the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to a different culture, different, with different forms and understandings. And so we have to figure out what the, what the cultural background of forms were. What's happening, it, when Paul uses this term, he's picking up on a metaphor that, or a concept that was common in the Roman culture of his day. And he uses that term five times And then each time he uses it to a predominantly Roman background audience. But what he's really doing, he's he's translating for his Roman audience, using the metaphor of adoption, he's translating, he's using this metaphor of adoption to translate a Hebrew concept, a Jewish concept, a concept of God as Father who establishes covenant. Because the concept in in the Roman culture of father was very different from the Jewish Hebrew concept of father, what fatherhood looked like. He needed to find a different way to begin to talk with him about what this means. And to some degree, we have the same problem in our culture. Because the idea of fatherhood has been debased in our culture. And so it's hard for a lot of people not all of us maybe, but for a lot of people to really get what it means that God is a really, really, really good father. Because father doesn't have good connotations. We don't have good experiences of father in our background. 
And so I'm asking you, regardless of what your experience with your father has been, to look at this with fresh eyes and allow God to reveal to himself what father really means. Okay? Now, Paul, when he uses his term for adoption, he's trying to get at stuff, as I said, that uh, they could understand in his culture. And so in Galatians chapter 5, he writes, uh, chapter 4 rather, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I'm going to come back and unpack this a little bit. But but again, I want you to understand there's a very different understanding in Rome in Roman culture, what adoption is. Different from Jewish understanding and different from our current understanding in our culture. In Roman adoption, the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All his old debts were canceled. In effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of his new family. Now, what that means is that under Roman law, when a man was adopted, it was was almost always a man, and it was almost always an adult male, and it wasn't done out of love, but out of uh, desire to have an heir. There were kind of political and business reasons behind it. So very different from the Hebrew concept of what it means to, to, to be in a family. But... There are some aspects of it that fit with what happens when we are adopted through Christ into God's family. Relationship with, with the birth parents would end. Previous deaths would be canceled. Start a new life. Take a new family name. Be entitled to an inheritance. In this new family, the adoptee would have the full rights and privileges of sonship to which he did not belong by reason of nature or birth, okay? Now, one of the things I want to make clear, in Roman culture, adoption was for males. When Paul is using this image, this metaphor, he's not using it in terms of gender. Gender, It's not a reference to gender. He's talking about it in terms of legal status, but also relational status. In Roman culture, women did not have the same rights as men. Daughters did not have the same rights and privileges as sons. Paul wants to make clear, does make clear, that in Christ, in the family of God, sons and daughters have the same privileges. Men and women have the same privileges. He says in chapter 3 of Galatians, So in Christ Jesus, you're all children. The the word here is actually the the Greek word for sons, 
but our English translations often translate as children because the context makes that clear. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs equally according to the promise. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And here he explicitly says sons and daughters. We live in a culture where people make distinctions between themselves. And they use the distinctions to separate themselves from one another. They use them to, to uh, gain leverage over one another, to use one another sometimes. Sometimes it even happens in families. It doesn't happen in God's family. It doesn't happen by God, never intended by God. In Christ, we are all equally brothers and sisters. That's the point that scripture makes again and again and again and again. All of us are equally loved by God, blessed by God. Now, one of the things I do need to make clear is that all of us, every human being, is made in the image of God. And every human being is worthy of of respect and honor and dignity because we are made in the image of God and are loved by God. But not every human being is a child of God. We become children of God when we entrust our lives to Jesus, when we receive his forgiveness and follow him as our Savior and Lord. So let me illustrate that with a couple of passages. Again, reading from Galatians chapter four. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Two key words here, redeem and receive. Jesus Christ came to redeem. But that redemption has to be received by us. John writes in chapter one of his gospel, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And really what John is saying, the world chose not to recognize him. He came to that which was his own. He came to his own Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
He's saying, what John is saying is that Jesus came to redeem and some people received it and some people didn't. They rejected Jesus. And the invitation was to all. It was to all. There was no distinction made in what they looked like, where they came from. No, no distinction of any sort around that. To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. It was his choice out of his love. He offered that. But he didn't force it on anyone. We become children of God when we say yes to his offer to adopt us as his sons and daughters. So going back to the Roman metaphor for a couple minutes, what happens when someone is adopted? Under Roman law, the adoptee, is his prior relationship to his birth parents ends. His previous debts are canceled. They're paid in full by the adoptee by the, by the adoptive father. He starts a new life. He takes on a new family name. He's entitled to, a, to an inheritance. And again, he receives the full rights and privileges and responsibilities of being a son in that new family. When we apply this to our relationship with God, our Father, part of what it demonstrates or illustrates is that our previous ties to our ancestor, Adam, are ended. We are no longer children of fallen Adam, but we are children of God in Christ. Our previous debts of sin and guilt and shame are canceled. We're no longer bound to the burden of guilt or the sinful way of life that, we, that characterizes before we were followers of Jesus. All of that debt of sin has been canceled. It's been paid by Jesus. All of it. So we're no longer under bondage to sin or the flesh or the devil, as John writes in 1 John. On the cross, Jesus breaks the authority, all that authority over us. And we are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's light. We're set free. We are set free. We can leave behind our old life of sin and take on the yoke, the leadership of Jesus. We have a new name. We are Christians, the people of Christ, the family of God. We enter into a new set of relationships. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our older brother. All believers in Christ are our brothers and sisters, a new family. And we have all the privileges of this new family. We have the privilege of calling God Abba, Father. Now, this is an interesting word, Abba. It's an Aramaic word. It's a word used by little children crying out to their father. The closest uh, English equivalent we have is daddy. So picture, picture this. God is your daddy. He's your daddy. Picture a little child running to his father, calling out, Abba, Abba. And the father just reaching out and swooping this child up and holding this child 
in his arms. And God is saying, that is who I am. I am your daddy. And I love it when you run into my arms. I am your daddy. I love it when you come to me. I'm your daddy. I look out for you. We have full access to God. We can come boldly, Scripture says, before God's throne of grace because though he is the creator God of the universe, the almighty God, he is also our daddy. We are reminded again and again and again in Scripture that we are the recipients of our father, our daddy's tender care. It's said of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. That is such an odd concept to think about. But what that is saying is that Jesus He's fully in. He's fully excited about the fact that we are in God's family. And what Jesus does for us is he brings us, he brings us into the same relationship that he has with his father himself. In the family of God, there's no sibling rivalry. There's no sibling comp- competition. There's plenty of room. The father's love has plenty of love for all of us. And Jesus, as our older brother, is so glad to welcome us in. It's hard to come up with a good image, but imagine walking down the street with Jesus. And you're walking down the street, and you're you, I'm me, you know, and, and so he's walking down and says, hey, and he sees somebody, he says, hey, have you met my, my brother Lou? I love him. Have you met my sister, Anna? She is amazing. I hope you get to know her because, you know, it, it's kind of like that. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers or sisters because God is not ashamed to call us his children. He's not ashamed to be known as our father. Here's our problem. Our problem is that some of us and all of us at sometimes think we don't need the love of our father of our Heavenly Father. Some of us, all of us at times, struggle with really believing that we can be unconditionally loved by God and eternally loved by God. We feel like we have to earn it. And in fact, some of us think it's better to earn it than to receive it. There's a foolish pride that all of us struggle with at times, thinking that we can actually do something to earn God's love and that uh, we need to earn God's love. And uh, when we earn God's love, then, we, then you know, we can feel good about ourselves. We resist the Father's love for I, I, so more reasons than anyone can count. We resist being loved by God as our Father. We resist receiving love Paul talks about, this is part of what Paul gets at in the whole book of Galatians. That part of the, the, the key issue there is here are people who received the gospel with great joy and were walking 
in the gospel, the freedom of the gospel by grace. And then a group of people come in and say, no, there's some stuff you have to do. There's some Jewish rules and laws that you have to obey. They say, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, we can do that. We're going to do that. And Paul comes back to them and says, wait a minute. You received the gospel of grace. Now you're putting yourself under the slavery of a law, of rules. You've been set free from that. Are you crazy? And so he's, he's, he's saying, listen, you can't do anything to earn your relationship with God. You just have to receive it. You have to receive it. That's the only way. Why are you relating to God as if he were your master and you were his slave? You are not a slave. You are a child of God. That's the whole book really what the book of Galatians is getting at. There's a bunch of ways it gets at it, but that's the key theme. Now, Jesus gets at the same idea in a very different way than Paul. So I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15, chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. This is how Jesus gets at this stuff. Now, I'm going to read verses 1 to 2, 1 and 2, and then jump down to verse 11, Okay. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus knows what they're muttering about, complaining about, whining about. What they're saying is, what's he doing spending his time with these folks? What is he doing with them? Doesn't he know who they are, what they've done, what they're like? What's wrong with him? So Jesus tells a story. He tells three stories. I'm going to jump down to the third story, starting with verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me back as one of your hired servants. Remember this line. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me back as one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion 
for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But before he could finish, finish his little speech, the father just grabbed him, kissed him, said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back. He's safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Jesus tells a story about a father who had two sons. The only problem is that the two sons didn't know they had a father. At least they didn't know, they didn't recognize that they had a good father, a father worthy of respect, a father worth having and loving. You have this younger son who comes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. And it's clear that what he's saying is, I've been waiting for you to die, and you're not dead yet, and I don't want to wait anymore. Give me my share. In that culture, there's nothing worse any son could have done to a father. He shamed, dishonored his father. Kenneth Bailey, who is an anthropologist and New Testament scholar, spent over 40 years in the Mideast visiting lots and lots of villages throughout that region. That, and he would tell this story. And he'd say, can you 
Imagine a son like this, younger son, and every time, thousands of times, they would say, no, no, no. This is unimaginable. It would not happen. It cannot happen. No one does that to their father. And then he'd say, well, if a son did that to a father, what would the father do? And he'd say, well, the only thing he could do, he would stone this son. He would disown him and get rid of him because the shame was so great. The dishonor was so great. And Bailey would ask, well, can you imagine a father like the father in his story? He said, no, there is no father like that. What father would be willing to bear such shame? What father would be willing to bear such shame? You have the older son. He stays home. And he does his chores. But when push comes to shove, what he keeps thinking is, I'm just slaving for this guy. And I'm slaving and I'm obeying the orders because he's going to die someday. And I'm going to get what's mine then. So I will do what I need to do to get by. And yet you have this father who has two sons and he will not disown him and he will bear the shame because he loves them, because he loves them, because he wants good for them, because he has a hope and a vision for them. And Jesus is saying, This is who your Father in heaven is. A God, a Father who's willing to do anything and everything to restore his rebel children to him, to bring them back home. Now there's something else going on in the background of this story. See, in the culture of the day, if there was a younger son who was straying, he would not be allowed to stray. His older brother would reach out to him and plead with him and go after him if he left and bring him home before he got into trouble. The older brother, even if he didn't love the younger brother, would do it because he loved the father and honored the father. And really what's happening in this whole scenario is that Jesus is demonstrating that he is taking the role of the older brother. He has come looking for us. Wooing us, pleading with us, come home. Come home to your father who loves you. 
And he's willing to do anything and everything, even unto laying down his life on a cross. To call us back home. Jesus is our older brother who loves us. There's no way adequately to to lay out how much you are loved by God. There's no way. There aren't words, there aren't images, there aren't metaphors that are remotely close enough to describing the indescribable, unconditional love of the Father for you and for me. And yet we resist it. We have a hard time believing it. It makes sense that we have a hard time believing it because it's too good to be true except it is true. And the cross of Christ demonstrates, demonstrates that to us. But we have to do something with this love. So ask yourself, do you know God as your father who loves you? Or do you see him as someone to escape or or to appease, a master? And do you relate to God as a son or as a daughter? Or do you relate to God as a boss, as a master? When we know God as our father and relate to him, as his son or daughter. We have what we need to experience rest for our souls in all circumstances. Scripture tells us that our Father sent the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit, so that we would experience sonship. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 6, because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. He writes, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not just to tell us the truth, but help us to feel the truth, to experience truth in us. The Holy Spirit is in us helping us to experience the love of the Father for us. So God the Father loves us. God the Son came in the role of older brother to draw us home. God the Holy Spirit indwells us so that we can experience it and have the power and capacity to receive it. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in this together to bring us home into their family, into their love relationship. That's the point that's being made in Scripture. And so through faith in Christ, I'm adopted. You are adopted as a child of God. God is your good and perfect Father who will never abandon you. He will never, ever, ever abandon you. He will never disown you. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do to lose God's love. 
Jesus is your Savior, and he's your older brother who watches out for you. You are part of God's holy family forever. You don't have to worry because you have an eternal and unlimited inheritance from your Father. And ultimately, God, your Father, is your inheritance. He's granted you his kingdom. So your past is wiped clean. Your future is secure. And your present is privileged because you have the privilege of being in God's family. You are his adopter's child. He is your father. You're chosen by him. You're redeemed by him. You're cleansed by him. You're loved by him now and forever. God is your father. And he is for you. And if God is for you, who or what can stand against you? Amen.